The God of Atheists, Chapter 72, Dave and Terry Take Stock. The reverse takeover of Sansity had gone through. There was great haste in the transaction. A certain amount of due diligence had not been performed. Not all of the existing clients had been called, and not all the key employees were interviewed. The scent of a boom was on, and time and tide wait for no man. Based on Sansity's position on the TSE, several significant sales had been made to institutional investors. The stock had been hovering around a dime for the past few months, and within three days it had climbed to 30 cents. Dave spent a good deal of time on the phone. For Dave, at last, there were again great trumpets in the air. His ship had come in. He was 29 once more, striding out of a tall building with a check for a million dollars in his hand. Dave could not sit still. He squirmed like a virgin on the back of a Harley. He decided to become a patriarch. He called Terry into his office. Terry came in, grinning from ear to ear. "'How's it going, Terry boy?' boomed Dave. "'Got that stock price on my screen.' said Terry, his voice silver with tense glee. I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I think we did it. Dave laughed richly. Yes, my boy, we certainly did. Now, I'm going to give you some advice, you know, as someone who's been through all this before. The stock is going through the roof, thanks largely to you, my wee digital genius. Now, I want to tell you about the sweet spot. Terry laughed. You mean when the stock quadruples in value in three days, right? No, not quite. The sweet spot is profit without regret. You sell now, you're happy. You've got 40K. That's a lot of money, right? Now suppose the stock goes to $5. Yeah, you heard me. We're in play. It could happen. Now you look at the 40K and don't see 40K, but 460K that never happened. You don't see a little hill, but a big hole. Okay. Now the stock goes to $5, you sell at $5, and it settles back at $2, or whatever the fuck. You're a macho hero in your own mind. But that will never happen. You hear me? Never. That's a date with Claudia Schiffer. Winning the lottery. Forget it. It's unattainable. What you want is to make a good profit, money you can live with, and forget about the peak. Now, where is the sweet spot between a dime and $5? It's a personal thing. For me... It's about $2. I can live with that. Especially if I've got some backup stock in escrow, which we have. Terry sat down limply. You're saying we, we, we could go to $2? Dave grinned and shrugged. Like I said, we're in play. Word has gotten around the prom that we have the biggest dick. Our dance card is filling up fast. You have 330,000 shares in total. How does almost $700,000 tax-free, since you were in from the beginning, sound to you? It's one nice fucking stereo, or a beautiful house, no mortgage. Porsche, anyone? Of course, if it goes to $5, well, <laughs> 1.5 mil. Been there, smoked that, buys a whole lot. But forget that. The sweet spot is a moving target. You don't want to sell everything all at once. Sell on the way up. Always keep something in reserve. Get some cash in the bank. Me, I'd sell 10,000 shares now, and another 5,000 every dime it goes up. Right now, your whole portfolio is in high risk, high tech, not good. But to diversify, you have to sell. 
I've seen a lot of dumb fucks hold out for the big payoff and get nothing. This is not Casino-rama. Screw that. Sell bit by bit on the way up and forget the peak. That's my advice. End of lecture. Terry could barely keep still. He, he felt dizzy. Dave, we, we, we talked about stock options for the employees. What's happening with that? Don't worry. Management is working on them. There are some legal issues, and this stock went into play faster than we expected. We'll have an answer within a week. But, but, but the stock could... Don't worry. They'll be locked in at a price either today or tomorrow. You know Don Lyons is gone, right? No. He was found with his hand in the till and was gracefully retired. The new CEO's name is Robert Washington, crackerjack man. I have his word on the options. This stock will be in play for at least another few weeks. Okay. Terry got up. Thank, thanks, Dave. Do you have a broker? No. Dave pulled a card from his wallet and handed it over. Call my guy Simon. Best in the biz. He'll take care of you. Go this afternoon. Don't fuck around. Take your stock certificates. He grinned even wider. Now go tell the employees we hit the jackpot. This week, we run the casino and the house always wins. Terry and Pierre went for lunch at the Swiss chalet downstairs from the office. Terry felt like ordering everything on the menu. Pierre ordered a beer and stared at his friend, almost squirming with envy. You are one lucky fucker, Richie Rich. I, I can't take it in, murmured Terry, scanning the menu without reading it. So what's happening with the employee options? Dave said, he said that they'll be locked in at today's or tomorrow's stock prices. Shit, we should have had them a month ago. We already missed out on the four times jump. You should have put some cash in, said Terry. Pierre laughed harshly. What cash? It's a fucking startup. For you, every beer in the past could have been ten beers in the future, thought Terry, but kept silent. His belief that Pierre was a social alcoholic was a sore spot between them. So when do we get them? asked Pierre. You've got to talk to Dave some sometime next week. Fuck, said Pierre fervently. I hope this roller coaster keeps cranking up. Terry ordered a pop. Pierre scowled. What the fuck, buddy? You might be a millionaire. Have a drink. Not not really the time now, said Terry. Need to be a little clear headed. Yeah, one beer will make you senile. Makes sense. For a pussy. <sighs> Do millionaires still have to deal with peer pressure? Wondered Terry. He sighed, signaled the waiter, and ordered a beer. It took a few days to set up Terry's account, by which time the stock was trading at 70 cents. On Dave's advice, Terry sold 50,000 shares, depositing $35,000 into his account. By the end of the following week, the share hit $2. Again, on Dave's advice, Terry sold 10,000 more shares. The following Monday morning, the stock was at $2.50. Terry stared at his screen and swallowed twice. Forget the five grand you lost. Think of the 20,000 you have. Monday afternoon, Dave called Terry into his office and told him that the stock options for the employees had been set at 70 cents, but would take a few days for the lawyers to finish drafting them. That Thursday... After holding a 250 for three days, the stock began to fall. It hit 190 by mid-afternoon, closing at 195. The employees were in a panic. They filed into Terry's office about every hour or so, demanding to know where their options were. Dave went to talk to the lawyers. Terry told the employees that their options had been locked in at 70 cents. 
By noon on Friday, the stock was at a dollar forty-five. Dave did not come in. All work had ceased in the office. Terry spent a good chunk of the day trying to track down Robert Washington. Pierre went for a beer. By the end of the day, Friday, the stock was at a dollar ten. The company receptionist came into Terry's office and said that David called to say that the stock options would be delivered Monday at noon. Monday morning, Dave called Terry into his office. The older man looked tired. The stock options are in, said Dave, throwing them across his desk. They spread out a little like a deck of large, thick, white cards. Terry picked one up. Pierre's name was on top. He flipped to the second page, passed all the legalese, and his eyes widened. A dollar ninety? he cried out. Apparently, there's been a misunderstanding, said Dave heavily. But, but the stock is at a dollar ten. Dave glanced at his monitor. Dollar now. Jesus Christ, Dave, you said that they were at seventy cents. That's what I was told. I can't get a straight answer out of Robert. Frankly, I think he's a little confused. Confused? God Almighty, are you telling me that this stock has popped and the employees who made it possible don't benefit at all? If it goes back up, do you think it will? Dave shrugged. I'm not any happier about this than you are. It's a tough break. Oh, Lord, exhaled Terry, sitting back in his chair. What happened? From what I got, the lawyers didn't finish the paperwork until late last week. It's illegal to give stock options at a lower price than the stock is currently trading at. Why? It's supposed to prevent corruption. You know, board members are awarding themselves cut-rate options that they can cash in immediately. Terry gestured at the pile of options. So, these are worth nothing. They're worth... It's worth the difference between a dollar ninety and what the stock is trading at. So, right now, minus ninety cents. But again, if it goes up, I don't think... Christ, I don't know. We can't hand these out now. Everyone will quit. There's some kind of market correction going on. No one sells stocks unless they think it's going to go down. Someone's dumping. Someone? The board, probably. Isn't that insider trading? Not really. We're not about to release numbers or anything. Was it all bullshit? Dave frowned. What do you mean, all? I mean, was it ever worth two fifty? Dave smiled. Stock is worth what people are willing to pay for it. You know what I mean. No, I don't. What do you mean? I mean, was it ever worth anything like two fifty? You know, as a as a long term investment. Long term, a stock is worth what people believe it's worth, Terry. It's, it's got to have some value beyond that. I mean, Microsoft trades at whatever a hundred bucks, right? More than we did. Microsoft makes a lot of money. We don't. This was all speculative. But, what? A week? Ten days? That's the nature of speculation. It's just. What? Then a, mo a money shuffle? Dave scowled suddenly. Hey. Don't get all sentimental on me, Terry boy. The people who bought this stock weren't looking for anything long-term. But who's buying it now? Dave shrugged again. Shorters, I suppose. Sh shorters? The older man leaned back in his chair. 
Well, you can make money from a stock that's going down. You say, I'll buy the stock now at a dollar and sell it back to you tomorrow at 90 cents. If it's 80 cents, you've just made a dime on each stock. But someone must think it's going up again, you know, sometime. Maybe. But by now, I think people are just betting on how much it'll fall. Lord, Lord, groaned Terry, his face pale. Relax, buddy. You're cashed out. You're worried about your escrow stock? That's almost ten months away. Anything could happen between now and then. Sure, sure. But, but what are we going to say to the employees? Dunno. That was a misunderstanding. I'll smooth it over. We can hand out some raises. How am I going to motivate them now? They'll hate you. Nah, I'll be the lightning rod. I do big bad ogre well. It's not the first time. Let me handle it. Terry, he said, leaning forward. You got to relax a little. This is your stock, Cherry, so I'll break it to you gently. Very few startups end up with sustainable stock prices. Everyone who bought in was gambling. No one with any sense puts their life savings into this kind of thing. Win big. Lose big. <laughs> Welcome to the world of penny stocks. He smiled. But here's what's happened to us. For us. Right now, Sansity is sitting on a major wad of cash. We can use that to fund the U.S. expansion. It was a bubble, sure, but now we can really make it happen. These stock options can be worth a fortune if we work it right. And not a bullshit fortune, but something good. Real. But here's what we've got to do. You have got to finish that goddamn database builder of yours. We've got to get it into the U.S. marketplace, and with a big splash, then we can make it all right. Everyone can win in the end, but we've got to go big now. We've got to go big or go home. Do you understand? Terry raised his head slowly. Of course, it would be heaven to believe. He wondered just what the hell was happening among his bosses. Was Dave somehow involved in this? Did he know that Don was lying about the stock options? How horrible a thought is that? Terry shook his head slightly and shuddered. Dave watched him closely. Chapter 73. Bill, Carl, and the Web. Now, something odd happened shortly after Sansity's stock price peaked and crashed in late winter. The company began to change hands in a kind of grim, decaying orbit, like a cheap woman falling down the broken steps of broken promises. A number of senior managers came through, all with great plans, rousing speeches, and promises of change, and all these men vanished within a few months. One problem was that the sales contract had been rewritten to pay the salespeople 40% commission on the sales of the product, as well as 40% on the hourly rates charged to make the changes to the product, when the technical team found out about this, they went ballistic. This is how sales work in most small technical companies. One, the salesperson books a space at a technical conference. Two, the salesperson and a technical person man a booth during the conference. Three, the salesperson drags potential customers over and the technical person gives short presentation. Four, the salesperson takes the person's business card. Five, over the next few weeks, the salesperson keeps phoning the people cornered at the conference until he gets a couple of on-site presentations. Six, the technical person comes down and does the presentation. Seven, if the client wants to go further, he or she sends a request for a proposal, RFP, 
to the salesperson, who then sends it to the technical person. 8. The technical person then does some preliminary estimates about how much the client will have to spend. 9. The technical person then deals with the client's technical reps. 10. Another meeting is often set up to present the costs. Usually, the technical person presents them. 11. The salesperson pesters the client until a decision is made. Now, the great question of software is, what the heck is the salesperson for? This is especially true for customized software. The product changes so much and client demands are so varied and complex that the average salesperson, i.e. a salesperson who is also not a technical person, has no idea how to go about selling the product. Terry puts it this way. Bill and Carl have no real clue about what we're selling. Carl drones on and on about his masters from MIT and his experience programming in 1965, and Bill just repeats that we're supposed to be tech experts and that it's a team effort, but it sure doesn't feel like a team effort. The salespeople make the promises, and we work nights and weekends to fulfill them. And every time we put time estimates into a proposal, the salespeople always come back yelling that the client simply won't accept that much, that our competitor is half the cost, that we're padding, and we'll blow the deal for sure. So Dave hears this and leans on everyone to reduce the costs. My view is that for every dollar we reduce our estimates, we should reduce the sales commissions one dollar as well. Yeah, right. So we end up having to fight this ghastly, depressing war where everyone wins at our expense. Dave gets to put a sale on the books, Bill and Carl get their fat commissions, and we get fucked. And they get the commissions, even though we do most of the work. I do 90% of the presentations. I do all the follow-up calls with their technical and project management people, all the cost estimates. What the fuck do they do? Set up a meeting? Big whoop. And why, oh why, don't they seem to understand that there is always some uncertainty in technical estimates? They're always crabbing that we can't give a straight answer about time and billings, but they, they've never hit their sales target. Not even once. And we're the bad guys? Yeah. Now, the salespeople have their own complaints. Carl, these kids don't know squat about running a business. Amos is not their personal playground. We have to make money, and making money requires sacrifice. Christ, do they think that I just pick up the phone and book a three-hour high-level presentation at a top company? It's a bit more than that, but they don't see it, so it doesn't exist. And do they think that General Mills is going to sink a quarter mill into a project run by a kid who barely shaves? I bring some salt and pepper to the mix, but that doesn't matter, of course, because everyone over 30 is an idiot, right? I mean, these guys are pulling, what, 40, 50K right out of school, and they complain that they have to work some weekends? Shit, I haven't been home in a week. And I drive to keep costs down. I'd trade a month of weekends for a week on the road. And does anyone call me up and say, Hey, Carl, thanks for the sale. Good job. No, they just bitch and moan and fight everything I say. You're taking too many risks, Carl. Right. I work for commission and they're complaining about risk. And they're always whining about having to come down and do presentations. But if they actually finished the goddamn program, or at least stabilized it, or documented it in any way at all, then I could learn the damn thing and present it myself. But no, there's always a new button, or a button which doesn't work, or has changed place. They say, present this version, it's way better. And then I open it up and it looks completely different. And there's no help file, no documentation, nothing. I say, you want me to present it? Finish the fucking thing. And they don't give me what I need. I say, we need a web solution. What do I get? Another fucking reporting wizard. Huh. We have no money for R&D, they say. 
I say, you're entrepreneurs, you dweebs. You built the damn thing without R&D funding back when you had balls. What's to stop you now? No, they have to get their beauty sleep. And I have a wife and kids, and I work like a dog. They've got fucking chia pets and lava lamps, and they have to be in bed by 9 o'clock. Bullshit. Total bullshit. I'd like to have seen them in Korea. I can't match, Sarge. I'm tired. Shut the fuck up and dig the ditch. That's what I say. It takes a powerful leader to deal with interdepartmental conflicts, especially intergenerational departments like sales and tech. Dave was not that leader. Dave had a standard modus operandi, figure out who is weaker and fuck them. He sided with the salespeople at all times because they spoke the same language and the sales issues were far easier to understand. But then things hit a real snag and it was about a presentation to Agicor. Terry received an email from Bill about an RFP which asked him to give a time frame for rewriting Emus for the web. Terry replied that an estimate was impossible. They had never talked about which platform to use or what parts of the software should be ported or what resources would be devoted or anything of the sort. He did not hear anything back for two days, and then Dave called him into his office. Terry, I've got Bill on speakerphone here. He says there's a problem with, with Agicore. Hi, Terry. Terry felt an ugly flash of anger. There you go, running to Daddy. Bill, so what's going on? asked Dave. Well, uh, Agicore is only interested in vendors with a web solution, said Bill. They'll start with a Windows system, but they want to know we are at least working towards the web. So they don't want many details, right? asked Dave, glancing at Terry. Absolutely not. They just want to know that it's part of our strategic direction. Uh, you asked for a delivery date? said Terry. Absolutely I did said Bill smoothly. Of course, the client knows that saying, oh yeah, the web, that's part of our strategic direction, doesn't mean much. They want to have some idea when we might be in a position to offer a web solution. They don't care about a specific date, just Q1, Q2, whatever. And this could be a year away, said Dave. It doesn't matter when it is, said Terry. We don't have a plan or resources or any idea how we'd actually do it. Of course, said Dave. So the question is, how long would you be comfortable with? How, how long, repeated Terry? I, 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 I just said, we, I can't answer that question. I'm not saying we have to nail it down, are we, Bill? Absolutely not. Just, you know, if you and I were talking and I said, Terry, how long do you think it would take to develop a web solution? What would you say? Terry's cheeks were turning crimson. I would say that I have no idea. You see? said Bill's voice. Dave pursed his lips. Okay, Terry, you have to give us a bit more to work with. Throw us a bone. It won't take ten years, right? No. Neither will it take a month. Right. Okay, smiled Dave. Already we're getting somewhere. More than a month, less than ten years. Shall we go out on a limb and say three we can whittle it down all you want, said Terry. The fact is we, we, we can't put it on paper in front of a client until we have some idea what we're doing. Absolutely, said Bill, and Terry was really beginning to dislike his use of that word. That would be completely irresponsible. I'm not suggesting that. We, we, we just need some ballpark Q figure. It can be anything you want, anything. You're the boss here, Terry. You want Q4 next year, you've got it. Anything. Just, just give me something. Can we do Q4 of next year? asked Dave. That's close on 18 months, 
Terry shook his head violently. We we don't even know what can be converted. Tree views, pop-ups, wizards. Hey, cried Bill. Easy, slow down. It's not a detailed plan. They're not expecting that. Just we'll have something on the web within 18 months or so. That's all. No promises. Just, just a direction. Terry took a deep breath. Okay. Give me a few days. This is going to delay the RFP for Sincarvi Cement. I'll look into what technology is available. Terry, shit, man, I'd love nothing more than to give you that time, but we don't have it. I found out about Agicore almost by accident. They need something by noon tomorrow. Christ! snarled Terry, his voice thick with rage. Well, what the fuck? Why even consult me then? Because you're an integral part of this team, said Dave softly. Ooh, ever the voice of reason. Am I? asked Terry. It's, it's, uh, no, no one ever says, huh, okay, Terry, that's a good point, we'll do what you say. It's always, thanks for the input, but here's what we have to do anyway. Dave leaned towards the phone. Bill, can we call you back? There was a short pause. I think that's a good idea, Dave. Dave disconnected him, then turned to Terry. Let's walk, he said flatly. It was a bright, cold day on Queen Street. The office was just past the garment district, out where the ancient, grimy fabric stores gave way to a dilapidated stretch of dollar rental stores and no-name pharmacies. The sun glared off the grey, slushy concrete. People in their early thirties, living the financially ambiguous lives of students and artists, argued against capitalism in Starbucks and Second Cup. Never Tim Hortons. They walked for a block or two before Dave spoke. Terry, I'm running out of answers. His breath vaporized in the air. Uh-huh, said Terry. He felt anger, fear, almost a difficulty breathing. His hands were clenched. He worked to loosen them. I want to punch my business partner, he thought. Things are not good. I wish you'd had more experience in business, continued Dave slowly. I wish you had some ex-boss I could call up and ask for advice. You're a good programmer, no question, but you don't see... Everyone around you is pulling for you. Bill and Carl are killing themselves to get your product, your brainchild, your baby out into the marketplace, in front of some people who can write some mighty nice checks. Yeah, I know, they can be abrasive. Salespeople only have to be sensitive in a certain way. They need strong hides otherwise, most everyone says no to them. They're the ugly kids at the dance, they get punchy, I know that. But I'm talking too much. Help me, Terry. Help me understand what's going on for you. Because I don't. I don't. Terry, and my failure is tearing this company apart. Tell me. Just tell me what you want. Terry did not answer for quite a few moments. Respect, I guess. Dave stopped in front of a roti shop and turned to him, his eyes wide behind his sunglasses. Respect? Christ, Terry, this whole enterprise is based on our respect for your abilities. He smiled suddenly. Shit, <laughs> sorry. 
Ah, shut up. Go on. They walked on. Terry's brow furrowed. I guess I mean respect for my limitations. Huh, said Dave. I I can't just make stuff up and have it stick. I really, really don't know how long it will take to do this web stuff. But, and I know I'm interrupting again, but this is very important. You have a special quality. Genius? Who knows? That word can mean whatever. Dave scratched a pale ear. Lord, it's freezing out here. There's this exercise I learned at some bullshit seminar on time management. You write down your goals and they just come true. It happens. You plant a flag in the future based on faith. Faith in whatever, your abilities, the universe, who knows. You plant that flag and a path just sort of opens. I've been up and down in my life, Terry. I've been around the block. You've got to have faith. Faith in me. Faith in your partners. But most of all, faith in yourself. That's really what this business is founded on. Faith and confidence. Dave laughed. Sometimes. No, most times. I think they're one and the same thing. Terry paused. A bike carrier whizzed by on the sidewalk, wobbling in the slush, cursing him for stopping suddenly. Uh Aha, but faith didn't work with Cyrex. Faith doesn't let you jump to the moon. No one's asking you to jump to the moon, Terry, scowled Dave. He pulled off his sunglasses and rubbed his eyes. Bill is just asking you to say, at some point within the next 18 months, we'll have some kind of web demo. Christ, ten to one, they'll be happy with the system we build and won't want some massive web conversion. Or we'll price it at a disincentive for them. Foot in the door, Terry, you know the spiel. And and you know what this is, this web thing? Some bullshit corporate directive. New CTO says, hey, don't buy any systems that aren't on the web. Department heads freak out because half the software they need is specialized and not web ready. So the CTO says, okay, well, can we at least commit to the possibility of a web solution? Sure, they say, not giving a shit. So it's bullshit through and through. Half of business is being able to sniff out the bullshit. That's the difference between us, Terry. I'm the amoral bloodhound. Sure, I know that. I'm no saint. You are a purist. God bless your shiny heart. Great. Really. But you can't smell bullshit. That's the curse of the purist. So we don't respond to this RFP, but our competitor, who knows that the client directive is bullshit. He responds, implements a system, makes a wad, and the client never asks for a web solution because that was never his intention in the first place. You see, I can tell. What if you're wrong? Dave scowled. What if your abilities had peaked two weeks into the business? Everyone's taking risks here. Bill and Carl work on commission. That's Bill's rent money you're fucking around with. That's why he came to me. The investors, management, sanity, everyone risks. That's part of trust. I mean, you trust me, right? Terry nodded, looking at Dave straight in the sunglasses at both his own mirrored, fish-eyed faces. Oh, groaned Dave, shaking his head. Terry boy doesn't love Davy B anymore. Terry smiled, his chest filling with giddy helium. Come on, sonny boy, give it up for Davy, 
cried Dave, grappling him in a bear hug. Terry finally agreed to Q4, thinking December 31st. But when he received a copy of the RFP that went out to Agicore, things went bad very quickly. He did a search through the document for web and found a footnote which said that Emus would complete a full web conversion by June 1st using Java. He called Bill back and said that that had to be removed. He had only agreed to a web solution by Q4, and he could not guarantee that it would be in Java since he'd had no time to do research. He put the same thing into an email and sent it to Bill, Carl, and Dave. A few hours later, he had his answer. The inclusion of Java in June 1st was an error, said Bill, left over from an earlier draft. It would be removed. Also, was Terry available for a presentation to Agicore on Monday? Yes. Terry flew down to Gillette, Wyoming, crushingly early on Monday morning. Bill picked him up at the airport and joked about their misunderstanding. I think you'll find them a most reasonable client, said Bill as they pulled into the parking lot. Terry's eyes were already stinging from exhaustion and smoke. The presentation went well until the client asked Terry to give more details about the Java solution and requested a copy of the project plan and just how Terry expected to complete the conversion by June the 1st. Dave was quite exuberant when he got home. Angela was not. Dave, what is going on with Sansity's stock price? Why? I, uh, I have some friends who've invested. What, the ladies who lunch? He grinned. Someone playing with their pin money? Yeah. You know, that's illegal. Yeah, okay, but what's going on? Ange, everything is fine. Some people, people who've been in it from the beginning, are just cashing out. But the business model is sound. Terry is doing great. We're about to launch a product that'll take the world by storm. Shit I'd buy if I didn't have to diversify. Steady as she goes. He took her in his arms. Tell them that, from me, from the horse's mouth. Steady as she goes. Chapter 74. Justin on ice. The question of Justin was sort of odd. He felt the pull of his new angry persona, but he also plummeted into a kind of depression that was hard for him to fathom. Ah, defenses, the great invaders of the natural human soul. Defenses are so endemic to our culture that it's almost as if having lived with bound feet for so long, we have no idea how normal feet are supposed to feel. His cool was ever at war with his rage. This is an age-old tension. While cool looks dominant, it is actually cripplingly subservient. To lord it over the impressionable is to be the poster boy of natural slaves, or a prisoner of the insecure. Justin was, sadly, laden with status. And it's important to see just what an effect that had had on his life. It started early and only got worse. Justin was the first son of a vain family and so wanted for nothing but limits. An infant's personality is a kind of liquid. It rises and spreads until it meets resistance. The resistance, in Justin's case, was almost purely verbal. He was discouraged from things, and restraints were more explained than imposed. 
the dictatorial nature of parenthood, the fact that toddlers are very often not in hot pursuit of their own best self-interest and know almost nothing of consequences, was lost on Dave and Angela. The great question of the modern world is the subjugation of will, and here we fail most often early. The problem of lax parents was formally solved by the imposition of moral edifices which transcended the authority of the parents. The child of lax parents could be tamed by the church, for instance, or resisted even by a secular society which was sure of its moral commandments. But now, with everything blending in flux, relativistic, the monstrous weed that grows from an untended childhood gets no pruning from society, only, in extreme cases, an unplanting and removal to prison. And, of course, such monsters can get away with far more now than in the past. Our communities have dissolved. Our businesses work at the highest level of abstraction. Millions labor for the government, which is not known to embrace the concept of individual responsibility. There are more rocks and clouds to hide behind now than ever before. So society can impose nothing but criminal restraints, and there is nothing more powerful than individual morality. But such children had no guidance, and that was a very sad thing. They had no God, no social values, no instincts. They made decisions on the opinion of others, on what seemed pleasurable in the short term, on what they felt like that day, on what was in fashion or seemed admired. They knew nothing about the long-term moral consequences of their choices. They did not understand that the choices they made today directed who they would become in ten years when it was too late to turn back. And then these extraordinary children came into the picture, these little terrors of moral curiosity. Curiosity is a highly underrated virtue. Curiosity is a completely undefended position. It just wants to know. It is unafraid of being wrong, since it does not know what is right. It is the secret of Socrates. Because curiosity is undefended, there is no defense against it. That was the great secret of Stephen, Sarah, and Alice. They were not trying to convince Terry that he was wrong, they were just asking questions. But it is the questions which undo us which undo our defenses, because questions are always legitimate in a way that lecturing or hectoring is not. Our defenses can only survive by provoking other people's defenses. Thus, all negotiations become me or you, win-lose, and all contact between souls is lost. Defenses are also tricky expansionists. Defenses are willed illusions and so endlessly unstable. Because they are constantly at war with reality, with truth both externally perceived and instinctually affirmed, they can never lay down their arms. Defenses tend to provoke extreme situations and profit from evasion, expanding their dead clouds over more verdant fields of the living soul. Terry was led into the subtle hell of Dave's existence. What would his life have been like without the intervention of the children? He would have followed Dave into another venture. At Dave's insistence, he would have ramped up his spending to the point where he could 
no longer have lived without an overinflated salary. He would have bought a great condo, a nice car, with Dave at his ear, murmuring forevermore, Terry, you work hard, you deserve it, don't be afraid of abundance, money does you no good just sitting at the bank, you can't take it with you. And so Terry would have become a high spender, a high roller, a big shot. And Dave would have been able to feed off him forever and ever, until a market correction came which was larger than any bullshit story they were able to spin, and then they would part, spinning off to their respective fates, never to talk again, forgetting each other's existence for months at a time. Now, dumb defenses do not mediate. They do not let in air. They consume to crisis, and then are consumed by consequences. A social alcoholic will almost never stop drinking. The hardcore drinker who wakes up on a sidewalk in Vegas without family savings or wallet at least has a chance. Terry had a conservative enough streak that he might have managed his ill-gotten gains to stave off financial destruction. Dave was exceptionally good at this. He could keep all the spinning plates of illusion going at once. So Terry might have existed in the half-world of compromise and evasion, which is the perfect holding pen, the ultimate cage of evil, because evil does not want us to kill, but rather die, and then just let what happens happen. To die, we have to be removed from sensation and self-respect. And tinkering with wrongdoing while staving off its consequences is the greatest victory of immorality. Great evil self-destructs. Little evils are like a cloud of flies which follow us everywhere we go. We spend our entire lives swatting them away, unable to concentrate, never fully at rest, always irritated. We destroy through distraction and petty self-warring, and that is sublime destruction, for it never ends, never diminishes. Little evils are the perfect virus. They destroy the good without destroying its host. Justin was in this territory, and his soul was in great danger indeed. His rap was vaguely self-hating, vaguely political, full of rage towards the modern world and its falsehoods. Like most angry, empty people, he hollowed out the world and raged at a void of echoes. He wanted to change the world, when what he most needed to change was himself. So what had happened to him? Well, the boy band was too ironic by half. The, that degree of pretension physicalized his anger. He was unable to sleep, and all his ignored instincts began rising. Who he was began to become real to him in frightening, accurate, insistent inner voices. His fragmented personality had retained the illusion of wholeness by scorning passion, empathy, integrity. His cynicism said that nothing was worthwhile, so there was no point having integrity. So his disintegration was a kind of integrity, a commitment to despair without bottom or limit. Of course, he'd been well trained for this. Dave and Angela had buried him with status, rigid social discipline, and shallow praise. His birthday parties included huge inflatable clown-shaped bouncing rooms, Nintendo games played on a huge white wall, shone through an LCD overhead projector, magicians, laser tag, disco dance contests, complete with spinning rainbow constellations. These parties were the talk of the school for weeks. Every kid wanted to be Justin, or Justin's friend, or even Sarah's friend, anything to get their hands on his toys. Envy is very dangerous for children.
It is a wild, insistent pseudo-answer to the question, how to live. Great wealth, like great beauty, and to a lesser degree great intelligence, buries honesty under effect. Justin knew that he had value because other people wanted to be him. He was vain because everyone wanted to get their hands on his stuff. He was cruel because he had to repel so many advances and soon preferred a reputation for cruelty to take the place of having to reject others on a case-by-case basis. Justin could not get out of bed, and he found this very shameful. Dave and Angela were very unhelpful. They tried to pass off his rap spasm, as they called it, as some kind of essential joke, but the problem was that it had been like watching a comedian veer off into overpersonal territory, where the line between comedy and anger shifts into audience discomfort. It was like playing with a cat who suddenly hisses and bites. It was too deep to be talked about. Justin's bedroom was a shrine of mockery. He had a Dukes of Hazard poster and another of Charlie Parker. Ironic because I don't listen to him, he would explain. He had an entire bookshelf of Chicken Soup for the Soul books, once making the joke that Chicken Soup for the Soul the Cynic would be just a list of all the other titles in the Maudlin fucking series, but no one got it. Some constellations of stars still remained on his ceiling from years past, and sometimes, at night, he would lie awake, exploring the edges of his inner horror, imagining that he was really adrift in the vast space between the stars, and a kind of terror would seize, a deathly, orgasmic ecstasy. Truth was, he kind of liked having a fucked-up side. It relaxed him, but he couldn't say how or why. It was like... It was like he didn't have to try to be normal. He had a get-out-of-touch-free card he could play at any time. It was his license to live without love. Justin also had a sentimental fondness for artistic violence. He'd seen Purple Rain once on late-night TV and had watched it for its cheesy 80s new romantic posturing, but the rage of Prince destroying his room had electrified him. And Justin had compiled a list somewhere of similar bouts of cinematic art rage, It made him feel special to think he was capable of such acts, of acting like a wounded, creative, raging lion. Now there was a detente. Irony had failed, anger had failed, and there was a regrouping. Health nestled deep within him. He was too young and well-fed to have killed it off completely. His health roused itself and killed all his airless momentum. For over two weeks he lay in bed, looking at his posters and falling through space. He passed it off as illness at first, a fiction which Dave and Angela joyfully embraced, given that they could tend to his body, at least. But he had no fever. After a week, they took him to a doctor, who confirmed the worst. There was nothing wrong with him. It was all in his head. Now, for those blind to depth, all mental states are mere willpower, An unhappy person just doesn't want happiness enough. Happiness is a matter of shaking off grim thoughts. A shepherd can keep his flock together by vigilance alone. There are no wolves large enough to take off both sheep and shepherd in a single bite. So they set Justin back in his bed and closed his curtains and bought him soup, and the whole household walked on tenderhooks in the face of this home invasion 
the manifestation of of something that was wrong and could not be explained, not with any words at their command, and which could also not be commanded or controlled. They tried working with the idea of stress, and it was a comfort of a kind because it came out of the pursuit of excellence, a stretching of the possible that seemed okay. It was like being a psychic athlete and pulling a mental muscle. One night, Dave and Angela drew up a list of all the activities and responsibilities their son was involved in. It filled an 8 by 11 page, though they had some items wrong. He had left the debating team three years before. But the list was a comfort. It was something tangible. There was a failure, but failing in the face of stress is also somehow succeeding. It is permission to fall short of a high aim, like failing to climb Everest. It also tied into the great confession of excellence mantra of the shallow striving classes. They confessed to being perfectionists or workaholics or hard-driven or ambitious or refusing to compromise. They confessed to what they were proud of, like a womanizer sniggering in a confessional. So he was overextended. He had spread his troops too thin. This was his body's way of saying he needed a rest. Fine, that was okay. Dave and Angela were nothing, if not compassionate. But time stretched on, and it became clear that Justin was fundamentally failing to mend. His friends came by and were shocked. His face was gaunt, haunted, like the face of a ghost in a black-and-white movie. They found little to say. There was great fear in his fall. Great fear and great joy as well, for he had been something of a social tyrant. Everything about it was large. Groups met and discussed it. Opinions ranged from the biological, he's got a virus, doofus, don't get sucked in by psychobabble, to the psychological, he must have been abused by someone, to the social, he's been humiliated and doesn't want to show his face. Conspicuously absent was the moral dimension, he's done wrong and his soul is sick. But who had the words anymore to speak in such terms? It would be like suggesting he balance his humors with leeches. So what did Justin feel? He was weepy in a sentimental, leaky kind of way. Tears slopped out of him, as they would slop into a boat half full of water. These tears did not give him any relief. There was none of the relaxed settling that can come from a good, hard cry. They came and went like rain, leaving no crops. He felt a hard bubble within him, a fixed, inert, and impenetrable missingness, an absence of light that could not be seen, a vague mirage that could only be mapped from a great distance. He slept fitfully. His dreams were shocking, lurid, indescribably violent. He tried to protect his sister from a shark that could be neither fought nor appeased, they were swallowed whole and sat in the belly of the beast, and then Justin felt the shark's bowels working to expel him, and he was squeezed down into tight, airless intestinal innards reaching for her. His dreams were full of staggering detail, and he could explore and control them sometimes in a way that he had never experienced before. Events of his life wound through his mind, filled with obsessive detail and circular repetition. Old pets, 
Friends from summer camp ten years past. His first kiss. First orgasm. His model railroad set. That last one always brought tears. That he once should have cared enough to shape tiny mountains and paint plastic passengers, but now wanted only to pee the bed so he wouldn't have to get up. What happened to the boy who cared that much? He cried because he wanted to believe he had been tender, trusting. But the tears did not relieve him much because he also remembered the tight, dead pleasure of refusing his trains to those who displeased him. A cousin, oh, what was his name? David? Whose orifices he had explored when they were very, very young, three, three and a half when their bodies were pink and formless like tender tadpoles. Everything he had learned from television, that you could talk everything out in 22 minutes, that moral problems were obvious, or that inner conflict came with subtitles and endless shots of sad women, (sighs) none of that came close. He tried to read, of course, The Great Escape of the Bedridden, but found that books came in two categories. The first were thrillers with small words, simple characters, and careful plots. They distracted him, but made him feel worse afterwards. The second were deep books that cut him adrift. He began spacing out so fundamentally that he had to drop them, like a child cradling a chicken egg which suddenly bursts into thousands of tiny spiders. The sickness he felt after such books was almost too much to bear. It was the sickness of a disembodied head, suddenly realizing that it cannot get to the book show without the body, or even change its field of vision. The voices had not left him alone. They had become random, disjointed, and he had given up trying to keep track of them. They were fragments of a great war, he supposed, but he had given up caring who won, who was currently gaining ground over his soul. He did not care to judge, participate, or take sides. He felt, ultimately, elementally, indifferent. He had given up fighting for what he wanted, for what he preferred. His old habits had come to naught. They had not even seemed like habits. They were just himself. And sometimes, new souls grow only in the absence of motion. It was like his inner life was in a kind of body cast. He even dreamt of that once, staring through the little squares of overlapping bandages, feeling a maddening itch, then a liquid pop, and then nothing, and wanting the itch to come back so madly, that he brought on a migraine trying to wrench his eyes around to see something, anything. And he had dreams of such sweetness. From these he awoke with tears that seemed to have relieved some pressure, like light ichor from a dark abscess, early, warm, mountainous flesh, nestling in the folds between belly and hip, feeling his mother's bones like submerged ships, the muted hum of her voice through her skin, a deep union, a oneness, a sense of comfort, so deep it was as if the very air loved him, entered his body like a caretaker, and he would never have to worry or fear. These dreams were startling and so, so sweet. A few moments before he was to awake, he knew he was going to wake from them, 
And this is when his tears started. Even within the dream, he began crying, knowing that he was going to be yanked away. And he tried to stay. He tried to hold his mother. But that grabbing was his awakening. And he knew that the grabbing caused it because the dream was about being held, not trying to hold. It was a maddening circle of cause and effect. One eye cried loss. The other spat bitterness. The future was unimaginable. Something had been left behind. He felt like a general, bright sword, pointing his troops towards tomorrow. But as he rode, he turned and saw them advancing warily on the past, as if it held a great enemy. Justin personalized everything. He viewed his crushing depression as having everything to do with him, as his battle, his weakness. If he dreamed of children, they were always him. If he dreamed of women, they were always aspects of himself. His narcissism could not perceive of the possibility of injury from others. He had the problem, and he alone had to solve it. There were times when he rallied, when he forgot complexity or the future, and he sat up in bed and felt intangible energy flowing through him. The strange mysteries of desire and efficacy and purpose began to return to him, and he would smile and think that his emptiness had somehow worked itself through him, like a piece of bad fruit or a flu virus, and would now depart from him without further effort. There are still sharks in the ocean, but I have survived this one at least. But then he would think of his family, his household, his friends, his school, and clubs, and music, and books, and university. Then his strength would fail him, fleeing like a slow flamingo under white hail. And he would leak tears again and feel crippling emptiness return. And he really began to hate such rallying, betraying troops. His thoughts were distractions to himself. This was like the problem of insomnia, the desire to empty his mind and float in an unthinking state. But the moment he abandoned his mind, it started chattering again. This was the double bind of failing to sleep. His mind relaxed into mindless chatter. Sleep was impossible. His mind was like a muscle that cramped when he stopped stretching it. Impossibility hung on his every thought. I can't stay in bed forever. Can't get up and do anything. Can't go back. Can't move forward. Hate myself. Can't escape myself. Am exhausted. Can't sleep. Can't wake. Can't relax my thoughts. Can't control my mind. Now, in such a state, it wasn't long before the idea of suicide began to come to him. At first he toyed with it. It something he'd read about. Something he'd never consider. But what if I did think about it? as something to play with, like a Russian revolver. After a few days of playing with the idea, two things happened. Well, three, but one will have to wait. First, he realized that it could be painless, and that was very dangerous. Research on the net, medead.com. Certainly I can get the sleeping pills, find the right dosage, the right time. That relieved some of the physical terror of the thought and knocked down a primitive biological barrier. 
The next thing that happened was that he began to think of the future. Now this is normally a sign of recovery, but he thought of the future as an endless, constricting tunnel that would require more and more effort to burrow through, to shoulder aside the draping folds and squeezing, mucousy intestinal grip. And, and at the end of it all, and here his breath came short, at the end of it all, why, there was the same drop-off, the same plunge to nothing, nothing at all, not even plunging. The idea that the future was just more and more of the now was truly chilling and was the first glimmerings of great wisdom under Justin's pink, unfurrowed brow. I could live my life as today, just over and over. I could spend the rest of my life in this bed, no matter where I end up. Without intervention, the future is just the past, over and over. But intervention seemed impossible, was impossible. Medical intervention? Justin hated the idea of sleeping pills. It was horrible to think of silencing his warring armies with biochemical warfare. The last thing they need is an external enemy, a high-flying, drug-spraying, droning plane. It would be terrible, indifferent. All honorable warriors would find a new droning enemy, and we would be right back where we started. These kinds of thoughts were really messing up his sense of time, like the old Dukes of Hazard poster, which he once saw on Waking and thought was a new show. Right back where we started? What the hell does that mean? What started? Did we know it was going to start? Is there some fucking timetable I need to be on the distribution list of? CC fucking me? A familiar sense of helpless rage slammed into him again, a rage at the unnegotiated nature of his internal occupation. Sure, strip my life from me. Why, because I like to ski and couldn't take every dipshit who wanted to come along? He had been possessed by a kind of devil with ideas of its own. And it doesn't even think I am worthy of notice, not even tossing a few crumbs of the schedule. Well, fuck you, my devil. You control the sleep, but I can get the pills. It was sad. It was petty. But he felt that somehow he had to get the attention of whatever was shaking his life to tiny, salty pieces. I need an exorcism to get my devil's attention. And I am quite willing to kill myself to kill the devil. Now, sometimes these wild medieval thoughts would strike him as absurd or self-dramatizing. At other times, they seemed deathly true that all the old stories were true, that sometimes you had to fight tooth and nail for your gentle soul. Sarah tried to help. Even early at the beginning of whatever was going on for him, she had come and tried to talk to him. But he could not allow that. He could not take pity or lectures from his little sister. And when she came back with Alice and... What was that other kid's name, the one who blinked a little and smiled less? Stephen. Justin had railed against them. 
self-consciously screeching and cursing until Dave and Angela came, eyes frightened, and took them away. And this fear, this terror in his parents' eyes, sent Justin off into another crying jag so powerful, so racking, that his bed moved several inches, and downstairs his parents heard the grating wood, stared at the ceiling, and almost held each other's hands. And then, and this memory always made Justin cry until the end, then his little sister had decided to come into his room while he was sleeping and watch over him. She did not touch him, but he would hear her come in, and she seemed to be able to sweeten the air slightly, a little, just a bit, and she would sit by his bed if there was a chair, or she would sit on the floor if none had been left there. Justin would open his eyes just a crack while pretending to turn over to see if she was still there. And the fact that Sarah cared so much that she got up nights to be with him made him tremble, and sometimes he had trouble not crying out with agony. Once when she sat by his bed, he pretended to stretch his arm out and rested his hand on her hand, and he felt her fingers tighten almost imperceptibly, as if she were afraid to wake him, and he fell from his mental chattering into a deep, dreamless sleep for almost an hour, which was remarkable. And she was there when he woke up, and he would have given almost anything to say her name. So suicide could be painless, and the future could be just more and more of this hell. This combination of thoughts made suicide come slightly more into the realm of possibility for Justin. He still kept it at a relatively foggy distance, but it was becoming clearer, more distinct. His war was coming to a crisis. Until the third thing happened. It was as unexpected as it was unremarkable. After another sleepless night, a night of self-battling and reaching for something which danced close by when he looked away and darted away when he looked closely, then he made up his mind. If I do not sleep for another three nights, I will kill myself. There was a kind of great peace in this idea, a great commitment to action, a line drawn in the sand. This is a form of self-abuse, and I will only take so much of it. I either participate in whatever is going on within me, or I end the show, I take us all down. Now, nothing happened that night, but the next night, he felt sleepy about 6 p.m., and turned his head on his pillow, expecting the sort of headachey doze which had kept him going for the last month or so, and he fell right asleep and did not wake up until 11 p.m., which was five hours without a break, which was amazing. Now, when he woke up at 11 p.m., he could hear the news coming from the television in his parents' room and knew that Sarah, if she was coming that night, was still a few hours away. Her habit to make up for the last sleep was to go to bed two hours early. Justin listened to the sound of the television and he knew that their door must be open. He turned his head and saw the flickering line of blue light changing under his door. 
It was a strange certainty that gripped him then. A kind of certainty that he had never experienced before. It was a certainty and a vision. Justin suddenly saw his parents lying in bed watching television, arm in arm perhaps, and thought, no, more than thought, he knew, knew, that they were dead, and that they stared at the TV with dusty, unblinking eyes. And he also knew, and this was the most terrible thing, that they would never decompose or lie still. They would get up in the morning and smile and shake hands and leave nails embedded in the palms of other people, and they had courage because there could be no death for them. They had nothing to fear and nothing to love, and were nothing but ambitious irritation, because they were cruel with the darkness of the already dead. And they steal, of course, as I have stolen, thought Justin, and he felt nauseous, and was suddenly happy that Sarah was not in his room and he turned over in his bed and got onto all fours, his head swaying like a lowing, carving cow. I have to break with my parents, he thought, and felt a species of shy joy that he feared his predators had rendered extinct. This book continues in the next file.